Hey, I told you I'd be back, and so soon here. On the week leading up to the NHL Draft, this is the 200-Foot Podcast, and I'm Matt Geica. You're listening to the Pittsburgh Hockey Now Podcast Network, a network which also includes Dan Kingerski's No Pucks Given. Have to enunciate the P there, or else the, uh, the FCC will find me here in podcast land somehow. And also, we'd have to reconvene Dan and I for another Press Box Nachos podcast every once in a while over the course of this summer. Who knows? Maybe even after Dan goes down to Dallas to cover this weekend's draft. And fear not, hockey fans, we still have plenty of action to go before we hit that mid-June to late August lull. This is the time when, if you cover the sport, you go through the entire season. There's the culmination and intensity with the uh, the playoffs and the Stanley Cup final. Then you get about a week and a half or two weeks off. Then it's the draft, then it's the NHL awards, then it's the start of free agency, and about a week after that, in the middle of, of July, like I said, things calm down and you can finally take a break. So we're pushing to the finish line. Uh, if you're a, a road race runner like myself, the, the finish is in sight. People are screaming at you. They're trying to give you that little extra adrenaline boost. If you're a fan of thoroughbred racing, like a certain member of the NBC broadcast team is, and maybe you are too, uh, but if you are a, a horse racing aficionado, we're at the quarter pole, or we're getting uh, around the corner toward the final back stretch or the home stretch. What the heck is it? I'm not even sure. I'm messing up my horse racing metaphors, but you don't really care because this is a podcast about hockey. And coming up later in this approximate half hour of power here on the PHN Podcast Network, I'll be talking about the Penguins and what they have in the tank in terms of trade assets if they wanted to make a deal during this uh I don't want to call it the most active time of the year, but it's right there, maybe even tied with the trade deadline during the season these days as the salary cap era has led all GMs, or at least the smarter ones, to value their draft picks more than usual. So that tends to uh, lead to more activity at this time in mid-June to late June. And uh, so I'll discuss that. I'll also talk about the the Penguins prospect, Jordy Bellarive, and what I think about him, unfortunately, I'm triggered in this way uh, to talk about him because of his unfortunate accident at a bachelor party up north in Western Canada. So um, I'll tell you a little bit more about what I've seen in him and um, assuming he recovers well, uh, what I think he can do at the NHL level. So that's up later on the 200-foot podcast covering every square inch of ice here um, for you. I'm trying to go more than once a week. Uh, We'll see if that happens. As you uh, may have learned last week, though, I'm making it more of a condensed format here, and uh, we'll see if I stick with that, but I'd rather do these more often as opposed to have this backlog and then have to talk about something a week after you've already gotten done thinking about it. I don't want to do that. The current media climate with the uh, the news cycle rolling over so frequently, it doesn't really match up with that type of an approach. So I'll go shorter, but I'll go more frequently here with these pods, at least uh, until I'm told otherwise by say, Dan or you or uh, a whole host of people who don't like it this way. But as for right now, let's go for it this way. And it is the summertime and not much has happened in terms of what might go on for the Penguins here this summer. Not much has changed since the last time I talked to you a few days ago. So I want to tie something in in sense, but yeah, it's a little more intimate than say the worlds of basketball or football, especially kind of on par with baseball and soccer, I would say these days. And speaking of soccer, With the World Cup going on, my friends, and not the hockey version, who knows when that'll be back, considering the constant acrimony between the IIHF and the NHL, but uh, with the soccer World Cup going on over in Russia, that's a hockey country too, so I can get away with that a little bit more. 
uh, with, with it in progress, soccer's quadrennial premier event, which attracts my attention and the attention of billions elsewhere, I have seen a couple of things where, bear with me, hockey could take a cue or two or a tip or two from the world of soccer. You might not be on board with what I call the real football. After all, they use their feet more in soccer than they do in American football. But I'm certainly on board with it. I'm the voice of the Riverhounds on ESPN Plus and Pittsburgh CW, and I have been for the past three years. Uh, the Riverhounds are a soccer team here in town. They play down at Highmark Stadium, in case you don't know. But I've long seen more similarities than differences between the two free-flowing improvisational sports that are soccer and hockey. And like I just mentioned, with baseball on the way down, maybe baseball is in this uh, maybe a semi-niche category, but soccer and hockey fans both take a lot of grief. And maybe you're one like myself who is a crossover fan who roots uh, for the sport to succeed, for both sports to succeed in equal fashion. And uh, so you've taken it on the chin from people who say, oh, why do you watch that? Why do you care about that? My point is that Soccer fans and hockey fans have a lot more in common, and their sports have more in common, I think, uh, than they have uh, that separates them. So because of that, whenever I watch soccer, sometimes I think, you know what? Soccer would be better if it did this thing or that thing more like hockey does it. Um, I'm still not a huge fan of of how offside is called in soccer, but I'm not uh, necessarily proposing a a change in that way. Um, I think Hockey could take a cue from soccer and increasing the size of the net, in fact. But I'm not going to talk about that. I'm not going to suggest that they make it, um, gosh, what is it, to 24 feet by uh, by 8 feet, which soccer is. That would be ridiculous. But um, I think an open mind would be necessary or should be necessary for anyone in any sport, and especially in the ones that are always looking for more attention and, and trying to attract more eyeballs. And for soccer in this country, at least, it's right there with hockey in terms of people who call it their favorite sport. Both sports are right around 7%. Um, if you're of one side or the other, then you are in a significant minority. But that also can draw us all closer together. So I hope we can pull it in under one bigger tent in this case. And so, with that preamble spoken, I present two things that hockey could learn from soccer. Number one, who gives a damn about embellishment? I know that if you are a soccer hater or you you feel like, I'm even in this category too, that sometimes the embellishment or simulation, quote-unquote, which is the the term that soccer fans use and soccer commentators use, um, you could call it helping out the officials by exaggerating the severity of a foul that was or was not even committed against you. In hockey, players are fined for that. Players are even sometimes penalized for that. In soccer, it takes one heck of an embellishment uh, to get yourself a yellow card, uh, which would be a warning, would be the equivalent of a minor penalty, I suppose, in hockey if you don't quite follow both games. But in both sports, I never really saw that big of a deal. Uh, I never never saw that big of a problem at all with embellishment because sometimes with the speed of sports these days, especially hockey, these referees need some help occasionally. And we all know that uh, they're not doing the best job in detecting everything on the ice, even with two referees over the past 15, 20 years. Can you believe it? They used to call this game with one referee. That, that still seems um, out of this world to me at this point. But when I first started watching hockey, if you watched it in the 90s, then you remember just one referee. And uh, that referee ran the show. That's still the case in soccer, but um, I don't feel that there is uh, any difference. So there should be any difference in the two sports with how we treat embellishment. If you want to embellish in hockey, go for it. If you want to look goofy as hell while you do it, go for it. But that's the price you pay sometimes to draw or buy a penalty. 
in some cases. So that's number one. And that's uh, always front of mind for me when I watch soccer and I see that and I think, boy, they, they put so much of a stigma on this in hockey. And I don't even know why. Uh, because I suppose that uh, that tough man culture that I spoke about last week then a lot of times can do more harm than good. In this case, it's not quite as serious, not anywhere near as serious as concussions and possible brain trauma and uh, subpar quality of life down the line. But it does affect the games. And maybe if there were more embellishment, we would see more penalties. And if we saw more penalties, we'd see more offense and more scoring chances. And I think most of us can agree those are all good things. But that's not what I really want to talk to you about here today. Number one, that's just a thing that floats into my head now and again whenever I'm watching either sport, hockey or soccer. But if you've been watching the World Cup, if you've been following international soccer at all, there's something called VAR that has made its debut at the World Cup this week. And it's called, or it's, uh, the abbreviation means Video Assisted Refereeing. Again, VAR, which I suppose is in the same vein as number one because embellishment can help referees detect things, so can video review. And hockey was ahead of the game for so long with video review. They were the first league in any of the, the major four sports. Well, we'll throw major five in there with soccer and uh, any other sport. They were ahead of tennis, which now uses uh, lasers and cameras to call the lines. And it has done it for the past 10 or 15 years. But hockey was the first one in the mid-90s to go to video review for goal-no-goal goal calls. Those are very critical calls. And now we see that happen in the world of soccer too. But VAR is something entirely different. It's, it's, a, it's an entirely different add-on. It's very similar to how hockey now reviews offside and also goalie interference. And we've all had our disputes, and, and I'm not even sure that goalie interference should be a reviewable thing on video because it's subjective in real time. What, what kind of clarification or uh, clarity, generally, are we going to get from putting this thing under the microscope? But I digress. Unlike the NHL, which limits its reviews... Um, to those two things beyond goals. Soccer allows for egregious missed foul calls in the penalty area to be called after the fact with help from a video referee off-site. That's the gist of VAR, and it's already paid off, if you want to put it that way. Uh, maybe the teams that this was used against wouldn't agree, but uh, in the terms of uh, this World Cup, both France and Sweden have been awarded penalty kicks after the fact. That is to say, no foul was called, in the moment, play was halted by the video-assisted um, referee. He uh, paged the, the referee on the field. They looked at it, and they awarded a penalty kick. And if you're not familiar with penalty kicks in soccer, they're converted about as often as free throws in NBA basketball, which is to say very, very often. It's not even really the equivalent of a penalty shot in hockey where goalies still have the advantage historically. What are they, about 35-40% um, shooters are, that is, on penalty shots. I think that's somewhere around the right number for hockey. So uh, there's not a, a one-for-one -one equivalent here, but I like that these missed foul calls in critical areas of the field are allowed to be reviewed and, and tacked on after the fact. It might even be the equivalent of reviewing missed hooking calls that would uh, uh, could have led to breakaways or odd man rushes, uh, missed interference that could have given a clean-cut scoring chance to a team if you want to look at it from a hockey point of view. Now, would adding this to hockey or adding its equivalent to hockey, introduce another level of subjectivity? Yes, it would. And with the speed and the rules of hockey, like I was saying, it's not quite as clean cut. Yes, hockey has the blue line for offside. So I suppose that's similar to um, limiting 
foul reviews in soccer for only plays that happen in the penalty box. That's where um, penalty shots can be awarded or penalty kicks, pardon me. I'm getting my nomenclature all mixed up, but you know what I mean. Um, but despite the, the problem spots there, for instance, what would be a, a prime scoring chance? What's just a, a half of a chance, if you will? Um, I don't know if there's any real answer to that, but the, uh, the the way that soccer does it and the way that it does it now at the game's highest stage, the World Cup, does highlight the inconsistency in the application of video review in hockey. Think about it. Why can you review goalie interference, supposedly a subjective thing, and I think it very much is, but not review high sticking or a possible major penalty, both things that could drastically alter the outcome of a given game? If those are missed... That can have just as much of an impact, if not more, than a missed offside or a missed goalie interference. Or to look at it a different way, remember back in the second round of this year's playoffs when Brad Marchand, I know I'm no fan of his, but he should have had a penalty shot awarded when he broke free behind the Tampa defense. I want to say it was in game four, so it was the game that gave the Lightning a 3-1 lead in the series and they went on to beat the Bruins in five. If Marchand gets uh, the call on uh, what should have been a, a hook uh, when he was clear of the last defender by a stride, by a clean stride, in alone on goaltender Andre Vasilevsky, no call was made. Um, that would be very similar to what we're seeing in soccer now with video-assisted reviewing, with VAR. If NHL uh, had VAR, then they might be able to go back and give Marchand a penalty shot. Maybe he scores it. Maybe the Bruins tie it up there. Maybe they win an overtime. Maybe they even win the series. So it could have been a series de- or a season-defining, in addition to a series-defining moment, for Marchand and the Bruins and the Lightning. How does it seem right that you can go back and take away a goal because it was offside by a millimeter, or you can take away a goal because, well, maybe the goalie didn't have a chance to play that 100% the way he would have played it if he wasn't run into. Um, How can you take those away but not help out the offense when it is warranted? And uh, they can make that call remotely in soccer or the equivalent of that call remotely in soccer, and there's no issue outside of the artificial nature of stopping live action. But that's another discussion entirely. Maybe we can have that at some point down the line. But uh, for me, when NHL video review was expanded a couple of years ago, it opened up some logical inconsistencies. Also, if you can go back and add a penalty, like I was just alluding to, it would be one area in which replay could actually help offense as opposed to take goals off the board. The last thing the NHL needs, it's looking for goals all the time. They even admit it in these general managers' meetings, in these owners' meetings, in uh, the competition committee when they do all this research and development, um, all this experimentation. It's almost always looking for more offense in the game, right? And yet, all the expanded replay takes offense off the board. It doesn't make any sense in that way. And, And maybe that's why... It's been so jarring for me as a general sports fan, but also as a diehard hockey fan, to watch a couple of these World Cup matches get decided by reviews that help the attacking team. Like I said, both France and Sweden have been awarded penalty kicks so far that wouldn't have been called or might not have been called if video assistant reviewing wasn't in place. I suppose we can't really take that all the way out of the picture and take that out of the referee's mind that he has that fail-safe or that safety net. Uh, But if you follow soccer, you know that PKs often decide games because they're almost an automatic goal in every case that they are awarded. Technology has historically helped defense more than just in these reviews. With the advent of video coaching um, in the early 90s, I suppose, when it really became a thing, and now with the way that teams can cut up these clips for players to watch, more often than not, I would wager that these advances helped defending because once you learn tendencies, it aids predictability. 
and predictability is always better for the defending team. Unpredictability, creating chaos, is what offense thrives upon. And think about it, the natural state of hockey is no scoring. You have to break through. You have to do something creative um, or, or take advantage of a big mistake in order to score a goal. So this would not only close up some logical inconsistencies in the way the NHL uses video replay if they do expand it to something like what soccer has, but it would also finally give the guys shooting the pucks a little bit more of an edge as opposed to the goaltenders and the the guys trying to block shots and, and defend, and that would be a welcome change too. No, again, hockey doesn't have the equivalent of the the penalty area and penalty kicks and uh, that sort of thing. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that the NHL can't take a cue from the beautiful game and taking a critical look at video review. And, and yes, one more time, I'll double back. Yes, some embellishment is ridiculous in soccer, but you do what it takes to win, right? And uh, I tend to be rather pragmatic when it comes to that and when it comes to reviews. So there you have it. Agree, disagree. Let me know in the comments or on social media. Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Matt Geica, M-A-T-T-G-A-J-T-K-A, or on Facebook at Matt Geica Media. That's my page over there where I like to share a lot of these podcasts and, and stories from Pittsburgh Hockey Now and all the other places where I roam around the great internet. Okay, so that's it for the main topic. That's the main course, but I do have a couple of side dishes here. Again, this is NHL Draft Week. Hope everyone's buckled up because it seems like some activity is going to go on. As we've been reporting for the past month and a half, uh, the Phil Kessel situation with the Penguins and with the coaching staff, maybe with fellow players as well, it's hard to tell. There is some conflict there, and it could lead to a Phil Kessel trade this offseason. Josh Yoey of The Athletic, my former colleague over at a website which shall not be named, he went a step further and said that Phil Kessel would actually uh, not be opposed to a trade, not that he wants to be traded, but it's not something that he is going to try to block here. And uh, remember, Phil that ha- Phil has that, what is it, uh, eight-team list he can give uh, of teams that he would accept the trade to. So we're a long way from getting to that point. And a team that would pick up Kessel's contract would have to pick up $6.8 million, assuming the Penguins wouldn't cover part of that. And being a cap team, I have a hard time believing they would take on some of that to just get rid of Kessel. I don't really see that as being a plum deal or something that Rutherford should pursue. But at any rate, according to Josh Yoey's sources, and uh, it lines up with all the stuff that I've been reporting, that we've been reporting at PHN this this spring and summer, the idea of Phil Kessel being back for a fourth Penguin season is anything but a fait accompli at this point. That's a Latin phrase, I think, that means a sure thing. Uh, I've also written on the site about why the Penguins should be cautious about trading Derek Brassard. In fact, uh, ironically, part of that's because I thought he had really good chemistry in the regular season um, when he was healthy with Phil Kessel. Or perhaps really good isn't the right word, but in terms of scoring chances, I don't want to give away too much from my PHN story, my Matalytics piece on on Tuesday, but Derek Broussard did not play as poorly as you might remember because, number one, he was hurt in the playoffs, and that's the last thing you remember. But number two, um, it didn't start great for him, but he had that six-game point streak going into the, the game that he, that he left. And again, I don't want to give away too much, but there are some encouraging numbers there if the Penguins bring back Broussard at $3 bucks, Pretty cheap rate, I would say, for a pretty darn good third-line center. And that contract is expiring, so it's not like they have to commit long-term. I would bring him back, and I wrote more about that 
on the site, but there's always the possibility, as Jimmy Murphy, um, friend of PHN, uh, one of our uh, colleagues in the hockey writing business, he covers the Bruins and the NHL up in Boston, he wrote that the the Habs, the Canadians, Mark Bergevin, Mario's old buddy, is um, interested in Derek Brassard, and the Penguins may have engaged in some preliminary trade talks with Montreal on uh, on that deal. So the, the mind races to what might be up for grabs. Uh, could it be as big of a piece as Max, Max Pacioretty? I don't know about that. That would be something, though. Um, it's probably not going to be Max Domi because it seems like the Canadians got their man in that case. And a tip of the cap to Dan Kingerski at our site. I mentioned he'll be down at the draft. He's coming off breaking a nice story there that the Penguins offered up uh, one of Connor Sherry or Brian Rust. And I believe it was Josh Yowie who threw in Dominic Simone as another name he heard that the Penguins made available to the um, to the Coyotes for Max Domi. But John Chaka, the, uh, the Coyotes' GM, wanted to move him on to Montreal in exchange for Alex Galchenyuk. And it's hard to begrudge him that because of the, the high-end skill that Galchenyuk possesses, even though he wasn't used very well in Montreal and or he didn't really um, meld to how he was being deployed. So you could look at the fault on both sides, but it's hard to look at any fault to the Arizona Coyotes and uh, and their pickup of Galchenyuk. So it does at least help us to know that uh, perhaps Broussard, perhaps Russ, perhaps Sherry and Simone are all on the market or all available for the right price here in addition to that uh, potential Phil Kessel bombshell. So, um, yeah, it's going to heat up here in just a little bit. And like I was saying at the start of the show, draft picks are valued more than ever. So it's only natural that this time of the year is rife with rumors and innuendo and even actual legit reports of trade talks, which have come out in recent days. If you follow the NHL and the, the trade market, you already saw the first legit trade of the summer, or trades, plural, with Ottawa's Mike Hoffman being dealt to San Jose and then on to Florida in the span of hours on Tuesday morning. If you haven't gotten up to speed on the whole situation with Hoffman's fiance and her purported cyberbullying of Eric Carlson and his wife Melinda following the shocking death of their newborn this spring, well, it's messy, but that's what Google's for. I'm not going to fill you in on all those details, but suffice it to say that Mike Hoffman was not going to be a senator for much longer, or at the very least, he wasn't going to be on the same team as Eric Carlson much longer. Well, they might end up uh, both be in different different locations by the uh, the end of July, neither here nor there at the moment. Um, putting that downright disturbing situation to the side, it might have gotten the trade season off to an early start, but it was only a matter of time anyway. As we have reported, like I said, Phil Kessel was the most likely major member of the Penguins to move this offseason. I think trading him might be a mistake for Jim Rutherford, for what it's worth, but hey, this is the week when... Uh, the former champs could get revamped in a hurry if if he or Broussard or both or who knows, Russ Sherry, I already ran, ran down the list. But the, the biggest issue for the Penguins, as I see it, is that they don't have much in terms of 2018 trade assets, just two picks in the first four rounds. They don't have a first round pick. It wouldn't have been very good anyway since they once again finished near the top of the league. But they do have first and second rounders next year and a second rounder in 2020 at least. So it's not impossible to sweeten the pot if needed. Again, um, draft picks being thrown around so much, like in the case of Mike Hoffman today, it was basically what Doug Wilson in San Jose got from the whole deal was a couple of picks here and there. And well, he's feeling pretty good about himself, turning nothing into something, honest to God. So uh, really interesting there. 
Um, with the way that teams can pick up bits of salary now, that does make uh, trades more common too. Hat tip to uh, Brian Burke for suggesting that back in the day and hockey taking a cue from basketball, which allows for retention of salary. It's not quite to the level of basketball. I think you can take on an entire contract if you wanted to or keep an entire contract and the financial commitments therein and move the player. Um, th- that's the thing that happens in basketball. It's not quite that freewheeling in hockey. Maybe we'll get there one day. Uh, but all that is a long way of saying something's going to happen. And, uh, well, <laughs> we'll be there to cover it one way or the other. And like I said, Dan will be in Dallas. I'll be back home home base here, keeping track of, of all the happenings over the course of the weekend. And, of course, it was last year at this time that the Penguins made their only real uh, trade of significance from last offseason, and that was picking up Ryan Reeves from the Blues in exchange for Oscar Sundqvist and that first-round pick at the end, at the very end of the, uh, the first round last year in Chicago. You know how that turned out? Although Reeves did eventually help get Broussard, so it might not be a total loss depending on how things turn out. Finally, to wrap up today's show, it's hard not to close with thoughts of Penguins prospect Jordy Bellarive and his Lethbridge Hurricanes teammates who were uh, brutally injured in that fire, brutally burned in that fire at a bachelor party up in Western Canada last weekend. It seems from reports that all three young men injured will recover fully, um, but uh, Jordy and his two teammates, they've gone through a hell of an ordeal here, and it should be a sobering incident for all involved too, depending on how things panned out. Apparently someone threw something into the fire that caused it to um, explode, for lack of a better term. It's all rather scary stuff there and things that have happened in the past when um, when young men get together. So you hope that uh, all involved can learn from that and all the people who have heard of this story can learn from that if they ever get themselves in a compromising situation in the future. But in terms of Jordy Bellarive's on-ice merits, I thought he was the most eye-opening performer at last year's development camp for the Penguins. He was darting into open space, showing a predilection for getting to the front of the net despite his small stature. He was also excellent, in my opinion, in Buffalo last September at the Sabres Rookie Challenge. He stood out in a field of Penguins prospects that also included Daniel Sprong, Zach Aston-Reese, Adam Johnson, Teddy Bluger, list goes on and on. He doesn't exactly fit the mold, if Bellarive doesn't, of the smallish, late-blooming wingers the Penguins have put to great use, like Sherry and Rust, since those guys went the college route, and Bellarive went major junior. So he's a little bit younger in joining the Penguins system here, um, well, at least compared to Connor Sherry. Um, actually, Rust, too, because Rust went all four years at Notre Dame as well. So, yeah, Bellarive's going to be a little younger once he gets into the Penguins system, which uh, is, by all accounts, going to happen this fall after he's aged out of Major Junior, but Bellarive does share many of those same attributes of Sherry and Rust. Like I said, hard-nosed, um, especially Rust. Getting to the front of the net, it's more like a guy with the stature of Sherry with uh, the bulldog nature of Rust, who's a little bit bigger, a little bit stronger. Um, I don't think Sherry would be upset at me for making that characterization and putting Rust into more of a physical category, but he's almost in between the two of them is what I'm trying to say, and with the way the Penguins play, their high-pressure game, um, the importance of forward checking. I believe Bellarive is uh, a great fit, and that's why the Penguins like what they saw, and that's why they signed him last year. Not that he wouldn't have been signed by many teams after the performance at development camp, but uh, y- you know what? With the way the Penguins play, and with, with the way a lot of hockey teams are playing these days, it uh, it's even more of a, uh, of a puzzle piece clicking in. 
if you want to look at it that way. So you might not have heard much of Jordy Bellary prior to this weekend if you didn't catch him signing an entry-level deal last year. But this undrafted player could carve out an NHL roster spot someday. I think it's uh, maybe not likely, but it's a distinct possibility. And now that he has another obstacle to try to overcome, probably his most challenging obstacle in some ways, in addition to being passed over by all 30 teams over the past three years at the draft, um, well, that'll add some fuel for him. And um, for, for Jordy Bellarive, all thoughts should be on his general health at this point. But, uh, you know, he'll probably use the, uh, the adversity as a little bit of motivation, maybe trying to prove himself to the Penguins again that um, it, it was a mistake or that uh, he might have put himself in a position that he shouldn't have this past summer. But I'm guessing he's going to want to try to reestablish himself and, and put himself in a nice spot. So I look forward to seeing him at training camp in September, assuming that he's able to recover that general health. Nothing's guaranteed in this way, but given his age and, and given his... Um, well, his physical condition, and pro athletes, let's be honest, are a little more mentally strong than most of us, you would have to say, to get to where they are in the game, then I would still bet on Jordy Bellary. But again, best wishes to him and to his teammates and all those that were uh, there to witness that incident. It had to be a scary thing last weekend. Thanks so much for listening to the 200-Foot Podcast. I suggest you check out the great work of Dan Kingerski and Shelly Anderson on our website. Especially take a look at Shelly's feature on a local sled hockey player. That posted last Sunday. We heavily promoted it. It got some great retweets in the sled hockey community. So glad to see that folks in that part of the sport are picking up on it and seeing the uh, the, the well-deserved pub that, that Shelly gave this uh, this particular player. So take a look at that. Take a look at our PHN Extra, now easier than ever to sign up, whether it be monthly or I suggest the yearly plan. It's cheaper on a on a, a per day, per week, per month basis than, uh, than going the monthly route. But that's all revamped and new. You'll have my analytics. You'll have other exclusive reporting and analysis there from myself and Dan Kingerski and exclusive reporting from Shelly Anderson there too. It's all at PHN Extra on Pittsburgh Hockey Now. Again, this is Matt Geica reminding you that when the radio fades, you know life's moving fast. Great to talk to you, and I'll speak to you next time here on the 200-Foot Podcast. God bless. See you soon.